So our scripture reading is Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. And they're up there, but they're also on page 893 of your Bibles. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Good morning. You guys will please join me in a, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come here today to hear from your word, to wrestle with it, and to be changed by it. We ask that you'll be with us now and prepare us to hear what you have to say. Prepare us to be moved. Prepare us to leave this place different than when we came in. Amen. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Woo. This is one of those Jesus statements that, you know, it sounds kind of nice. You know, it might be something that you, you see uh, on like an inspirational Instagram post as you're scrolling through your feed. Uh, but when you sit and hear it, it has a weight to it. That maybe when you heard this being read today, you were already thinking, love my enemies. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, because for a lot of us, it can bring up uh, feelings of pain, discomfort, anxiety, and it can get pretty touchy. Uh, but I want us to look today at the heart of what Jesus is saying. Because it couldn't be more relevant to how we understand our personal relationships, to how we understand our relationships to society, and even how we think about the future. Uh, but before we can get into any of this, I want us to just start with something basic. Who are our enemies? You know, in uh, TV and movies, the lines between friends and enemies, between the good guys and the bad guys, are pretty uh, big. They get blown up into these epic proportions. You got Tom versus Jerry. You know, you got the, the kids of Stranger Things versus the Mind Flayer. You got the Starks versus the Lannisters. And Seinfeld versus Newman. <laughs> you know, in these cases, we see plenty of love for our friends uh, and plenty of hate for our enemies. You know, in, uh, in real life, it's not always that big and dramatic. But I think that we all have people that we love and count as friends. And we all have people who stir up feelings of anger, resentment, or even just annoyance, our enemies. You know, if we pause for a minute and think about the people in our lives, you know, I don't think it would take too long for us to uh, put together a list of people that we count as friends. You know, people we can trust, people who support us. Uh, people who we feel safe around. Uh, maybe some of those people are in this room. And I don't think it would take too long for us to also create an equal list of enemies. People who have hurt us. You know, people who we don't feel safe around. 
people who have stopped us from getting what we feel like we deserved, or simply people who think and act differently than what we are comfortable with. We all have personal friends and enemies, but what if we widen our scope a little bit? We, we see that the same dynamic plays out on a bigger social setting as well. You know, and I think this was especially true to the people that Jesus was talking to when he was delivering the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when, when Jesus' first century Jewish listeners heard these words, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, their minds probably didn't go to their personal relationships, to their, their neighbor who said something nasty behind their back last week. When they heard about enemies and people who were persecuting them, they probably thought about the Roman soldiers who had literally waged war against them uh, a few decades earlier and probably killed some of their friends and family. You know, these were enemies who had the capacity to end their life if they saw fit. You know, these are the people where the term enemy might seem the most appropriate. I mean, most of us don't really talk in terms of enemy and persecutors. Like, these seem like older terms, but back then, the term enemy probably referred to somebody who could actually kill you, harm you, cause serious physical damage. But what do all of these enemies, you know, personal enemies, social enemies, have in common? Uh, they threaten us. They make us feel vulnerable. They put the things that we care about most in jeopardy. And these are the people that Jesus is telling us to love. You know, in order to really understand what Jesus is getting at here, first we need to pause and realize that when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he isn't just adding another rule for you to follow. He isn't just saying, I know that you've got your friends, and it's easy for you to love them, but if you want to go with me, if you want to be a real Christian, well, here's all these other rules you have to follow. You have to also love your enemies, even though it's really hard. And here's another rule. You have to pray for those who persecute you. You just got to do it if you want to be a real Christian. Oh, and you have to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That's just part of the deal. And I, I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here at all. Because honestly, this would be impossible. All of it. You can't just flip on the love switch uh, towards people who have hurt you. You can't do it. You can't just wake up in the morning and decide to love somebody who has broken your trust and caused you real pain. You know, if you've been on the receiving end of something terrible like racism or sexism or just senseless violence, you can't force your heart to love these people, these real-life enemies, people who have caused you real harm just because of uh, some sort of religious obligation. You can't force this sort of thing. I mean, can you imagine telling a parent who lost their child in one of the shootings in El Paso or Dayton to love the shooter who killed their son or daughter because the Bible says so? I mean, to say something like this would be insanely cruel and not at all what Jesus had in mind. In order for any of us to really understand what Jesus is getting at here when he's telling us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, we have to understand that a much deeper change needs to take place first. Something needs to change at the heart level, not just in our external actions towards people or a feeling towards people. Something needs to change in our heart. Because all of us have a default setting in our heart that revolves around pride and fear. You know, pride is our belief that our world is all about us and that we need to get the things that we feel like we deserve. That's our pride acting out. And on the flip side, we have our fears. 
Fears that uh, we won't be able to get the things that we feel like we deserve. Or a sense that the universe, which all revolves around us, might come crashing down. You know, this isn't a condemnation of anybody. These are our natural default settings in our heart to uh, be promoting our own self-interest and to be protecting ourselves against anything that seems threatening. And when this is how we choose to live our life, we have to live by the motto, love your friends and hate your enemies. If our number one goal is to put ourselves in a place where things always go our way, then of course we're going to love the people that fit into this vision. You know, the people who support us and bolster our ego with compliments. We're going to love the people who help us get what we want. We love the people who reassure our sense of being in control. We're going to love our friends. And naturally, we are going to hate the people the threat that threaten to take away our sense of comfort. We're going to hate the people that get in our way. We're going to hate the people that make us feel bad or small or stupid. We're going to hate the people that hurt us and make us feel afraid. We're going to hate the people who stand for things that we stand against. We are going to hate the people that make us feel like our world is no longer safe. We are automatically going to have hate for our enemies when our pride and our fear is the predominant thing in our heart. And this is why I think many of us might have a real gut reaction to what Jesus is saying when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because this is scary. We're putting ourselves out there if we're doing this. It means putting yourself in a position where things probably won't go your way. It means uh, putting yourself in a place where you're opening yourself to be hurt. You know, if you're not a little bit scared about this, then you're not thinking about the consequences. If, if you show love to your enemies, they'll probably take advantage of that. And they could hurt us. In some cases, if a person were to show love to their enemy, they'd be opening themselves up to be killed. And the crazy thing is, is that's exactly what Jesus did. He showed us what this looks like in action, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. And it wasn't pretty. <laughs> in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asked his disciples to do three impossible things. To love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And during the final hours before his death on the cross, Jesus did all three of those things. And when Christ was with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying and preparing for what he was about to go through, uh, for what was about to happen, there was this gang of religious leaders and armed guards who came to take him away to a trial where the verdict had already been decided. And as this religious mafia moves in to take Jesus into custody, Peter, one of Jesus' followers, uh, he fought back cutting off the ear of uh, Malchus, one of the high priest's aides. And what did Jesus do in response to this very real threat from some very real enemies who came to do him harm? He touched Malchus's ear and he healed him. He loved his enemies. The people who had come to kill him, even as they came with murder in their hearts, he loved them. A few hours later, after the unsurprising guilty verdict had been dealt, Jesus was led to a hill outside the city to be crucified with two criminals. And as the Roman soldiers held his body in place and drove nails into his hands and feet, what did Jesus do? He prayed for them. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He prayed for those who persecuted him, even as they were torturously putting him to death. 
And a few hours after this, after making himself vulnerable, and after his enemies had taken full advantage of the love that he'd showed them, by putting him on a cross, he breathed his last words, it is finished. In the original language, the word finished comes out as tetelestai, which means mature, not lacking anything, complete. It means perfect. It's the same root word that he used when he told the crowd in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In his dying words, as he said, it is finished, it's as if he was saying, it is perfect. He was declaring his death the perfect sacrifice. The perfection that he asked of his followers when he taught, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, was always out of reach for them. And it's always been out of reach for us. But it wasn't for him. For him, his death was nothing less than perfect love for a world that was out to destroy everything he stood for, a world that was his enemy. And the last thing that he did before he died was practice what he preached. He loved his enemies. He prayed for those who persecuted him. And he gave us all a glimpse of perfection. And if the story ended here with Jesus dying on the cross, then all of his life, everything that he did, would be nothing more than a cautionary tale. It would be, hey, you want to know what happens if you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Well, look at him. That's what happens. You get hurt. You get killed. Your enemies win. That's what happens. But the story doesn't end there. It goes on. Because it turns out that Jesus' death on the cross was just the beginning of the end for the cycle of hate and violence that gets generated when our fear and our pride are the ones calling the shots. In order to end this destructive cycle of only loving your friends and always hating your enemies, God took the greatest act of hate and violence that the world had to give and he took it on himself. And he responded with the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. He was hit with the pain and destruction of the cross, the ultimate way to hate and kill your enemies, and instead of responding with more death and more destruction, which would have only continued this cycle, he simply let the echoes of violence fade before answering them with something new on Sunday morning, three days after being killed. You know, that Sunday morning, that's the reason that Christians everywhere gather uh, to worship and celebrate that a new system has been set in motion. Something new was started when Jesus walked out of that cross as a re- or walked out of that grave as a resurrected man alive breathing with blood pumping through his veins and oxygen filling his lungs the cycle of death had been broken and something new has started to move this restorative cycle where peace love and justice replace this old downward spiral of violence hate and retaliation And it's because of this new system that Jesus put in place that we can love our enemies. Because he canceled the old way with his death on the cross and his resurrection. Because of that, we can actually love our enemies without fear. And we can pray for people that persecute us uh, with genuine compassion. We can never love our enemies out of sheer religious obligation. But if our hearts are driven by hope and faith, that Jesus really is who he says he is, the resurrected son of God who came to set up something entirely new, well then loving our enemies simply means, uh, it just simply becomes our way of taking part in this new system. 
When the self-centered pride and fear in our hearts has been replaced by the faith, hope, and love that Jesus brought into the world, we can love our enemies because we no longer see our needs as the most important thing in the world, but we see Christ and his kingdom, the new world that he came to bring about, this world of love and peace and justice and joy. Now we see that as the most important thing. And when that's there, we know that we can love genuinely. You know, in the old way of fear and pride, loving your enemies didn't make any sense at all. It meant you didn't get what you wanted. In fact, it was seen as completely crazy. You know, but here's the thing. You, you have to be crazy enough to believe that a man could rise from the dead if you're going to be crazy enough to love your enemies. Or to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, we preach Christ crucified which is foolishness to the world. It doesn't make any sense. But God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So when we're loving our enemies, it it might sound like foolishness and weakness and craziness to a world that's wrapped up in this old system of fear and pride and retaliation, but it makes perfect sense. And it's actually a sign of strength in this new system that Jesus is putting in place, this system that he called the kingdom of God. And there's so much that could be said about this kingdom that we wait for, that we sing about here at City Life. You know, people have been thinking about it for a long time, and there's so much that could be said, but I just want to say a little bit here is that the kingdom has already started to take root here. It started when Jesus began his ministry of teaching, healing, showing the world that something better was on its way. But it's not yet here fully. It's been rooted, but it hasn't blossomed. You know, you might have noticed that the old cycle of loving your friends and hating your enemies is still alive and well. You know, watch the news and you'll see plenty of proof. But this already here, but not yet finished way of thinking about God's kingdom is something that we actually recognize and celebrate every time we take a piece of bread and dip it in some wine at communion. You know, Jesus describes the day when the kingdom finally comes in its fullness, when the world is finally put right. He describes it as a wedding feast uh, where former enemies will sit down at a table together across from each other as sisters and brothers. Black, brown, and white will sit together Rich and poor will sit together. Republicans and Democrats will sit together. Tom and Jerry will probably sit together too. You know, this feast, this wedding feast, this celebration, uh, it celebrates that the old cycle of pride and fear are over for good and that the new way of love is here to stay. You know, the meal that we share every week here at City Life, it's our foretaste of that feast. It's our appetizer before the main course Uh, It reminds us that God's kingdom is on its way, you know, that this small, small meal that we share is just pointing towards something much bigger, something much grander, this feast that uh, will satisfy everyone. You know, it reminds us that God's kingdom is on its way even though we might not feel it yet, even though we know that this world still has plenty of cycles of violence and fear and pride. You know, and I, I, I really like the way that uh, Leslie Newbegin put it, and so there's actually a quote in your uh, bulletin uh, about this way of looking at the kingdom of God. He, he, he talks about it this way, that Christ's reign 
is to be known not by sight, but by faith. Not in full enjoyment, but in foretaste. Not in complete manifestation, but in signs, which point beyond themselves to a reality greater than themselves. That's what loving your neighbor and praying for those who persecute you is. It's a sign of God's coming kingdom. It's God's people living under new kingdom values, even in an old kingdom world. And to get a glimpse of what this looks like in action, you know, some of the signs that, that New Beginning was talking about, I want us just to look at two examples. One uh, about God's kingdom coming in at a big social level, uh, and then another one uh, about how God's kingdom can come about on a small personal level, and then we'll close. And really, I, I can't think of a better image of what loving your enemies looks like on a large social scale than the nonviolent uh, civil rights movement led by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, as, as black citizens fought for equal rights and justice in the United States, Dr. King and countless others were threatened with violence, lynching, and all sorts of other horrible things from white supremacists who couldn't handle the idea of racial equality. But instead of responding to this hate with more hate, Dr. King led a movement that responded with love for these enemies because he had the same hope that all Christians have, the hope that Jesus has already started to undo the systems of violence, racism, and retaliation, and that Jesus will someday usher in a kingdom of peace. You know, he, he gave this famous speech, this I have a dream speech, which is rooted in these images of the kingdom of God. And I'd like to read just a little bit of it here. He says, I have a dream that one day in Alabama with its vicious racists, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Dr. King's dream was a vision of the kingdom of God, and it's because he had this dream, this hope of a world that would someday be a better place that he was able to love the people who wanted him dead. Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement of the 1960s changed American society profoundly. And they did it by loving their enemies and praying for those who persecuted them. And finally, if you've been sitting here thinking about some of the enemies in your life, maybe on a more personal scale, you've been wondering what on earth Jesus is saying and about how that can relate to your own life and your own relationships, well, uh, let me give you something concrete that we can actually do together to cultivate love for the people in your life that might feel unlovable. And there's this meditation practice called sympathetic joy that you can use it's, uh, as a sort of prayer for the people that you might think of as enemies. You know, I read about the effects that this kind of prayer practice can have on people with anxiety and depression, and some of the stories blew my mind. You know, one person named Rachel described the change that it had in her life. She had suffered for a really long time uh, of depression and anxiety rooted in, in a sense of envy, uh, of looking out at the world around her, seeing everybody else having it better and being eaten up by that. And she practiced this, this sort of uh, sympathetic joy meditation practice. 
And she said, I did this every day for 15 minutes, and for the first few weeks it felt pointless. You know, nothing changed. But then I started to notice that I don't feel that same churning punch in the gut when I see someone I don't like. It doesn't mean that I don't feel anger or envy at all. It just means that it's been taken down so many notches that I don't experience the same pain. You know, now I feel way more happiness. <laughs> it's almost like I'm looking at these people through the eyes of a loving parent that just wants someone they love to be happy and have good things. And there's a tenderness to it for me. And so uh, it, this might be a little bit unorthodox. This isn't the way that we normally end sermons, but I'd like to use this practice as a guide for us in our closing prayer. And we've, we've been talking about loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. So I think it's only fitting if we end our time together by doing that, by praying for those who wish us harm. So if you're up for something a little bit different, uh, here we go. And if you don't want to do it, that's okay. But I want to invite you all to, to close your eyes for a minute. Picture yourself. You know, imagine something good happening to you. You know, maybe falling in love or, or writing something that you're proud of. Feel the joy that would come from this. Feel that joy and let it flow through you as you share this image that you have with God. Joy that you've experienced for yourself. Now picture somebody that you love. Maybe a spouse, or a family member, or a close friend. And imagine something wonderful happening for them. Something that brings them joy. Feel the joy from that and let that flow through you too. As you share this image with God of someone you love having something wonderful happen to them. So far, this might be pretty easy. But now picture somebody that you don't really know. You know, it could be someone sitting here at church that you've never met before, or it could be the barista at Starbucks who made the coffee you picked up on your way here. And imagine something wonderful happening for them, this stranger who you don't really know. Try to feel joy for this person, you know, real joy and ask that God might make this joy a reality for them, that they could really experience this happiness in their life. Now it gets a little harder. Picture someone you don't like and try to imagine something good happening to this person. Think about the things they desire and imagine them finding success in something that's important to them. Try to feel the same joy that you'd feel for yourself or for someone you love towards this person. Imagine how good they'd feel and how moved they'd be. And now ask God to make this joy a reality in their life as well. And finally, this is the hardest one. Think of somebody that you really dislike. Maybe it's the person that came to mind every time we talked about enemies today. 
and try to feel joy for them. Now, even though it might go against everything that you've felt for them in the past, try to feel real joy and gratitude for them and share this joy with God. For some of you, this might really feel impossible. You know, it, and if you're not at a place where you can pray like this for the person you have in mind, maybe if the pain is still too real, that's okay. Because we end this prayer the same way, by asking God to show all of us a glimpse of the world that he is making. His kingdom, where old wrongs will be made right, and where enemies can become friends. Lord, we lift up all this joy and this hope that we have been picturing and we ask that you would make it grow in us. God, we ask that you would cause this joy and this hope to grow and replace the pride and fear that has led us to hate our enemies. Help us to remember that you are who you say you are, the resurrected God who is transforming the world around us. Lead us into your kingdom now so we can genuinely love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and that this would all be a sign that points to your perfection, to the work you are doing to make the world whole. Continue to work in us today and throughout this week and for the rest of our lives. Amen.